My wife and I and daughter got back from China last Thursday, uh, a week ago, and um, I think it's probably one of the first times in my life I felt out of place. Um, it's funny, I had a client that I was, before we left, I said, hey, we're going to go to China. She's like, well, where are you going? I said, well, we're going to fly into Beijing, then we're going we're gonna to be in uh, Shanghai, and then we're going to end up down in Wenzhou. And she goes, well, first of all, it's not called Beijing, it's called Beijing. And it's not Shanghai, it's Shanghai. If you talk like that, they're going to know you're not from there. <laughs> I'm like, really? Uh, that's going to be the first indicator? Uh, I think that if it takes that, then we got a problem. But um, there was, it was such an incredible trip, and we got to share some of it just between services with, with folks that were here. But, but I'll just say this. Out of my element, like I felt... Like, I didn't understand the culture. I couldn't understand the language. It was difficult to communicate. And there was a, there was a sense of discomfort. And like, like I, am a, I am a large, white, American male. All right? I don't... Really, really not the time, babe. It, it, not now, baby, not now. It's, but it's like... I am, I'm not used to not fitting in. Like, I'm not, except at the amusement park rides. They're biased against me. Uh, and some seatbelts. It's like, I am not used to not fitting in. So, so the topic that we're going to address this morning is not something that I feel like I have the ability um, to share with you with a lot of authority. Matter of fact, I met with um, some friends this week who experience this a lot more than I do so that I could get from them, honestly, some help in knowing what it's like. So James finishes up chapter 1 talking about what true religion is, right? It's faith in action. It's visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And he says it's not just enough to say you believe. It needs to be something that affects your, your actions, what you do. And then as we turn the page into chapter 2 of James, he addresses a sin that all of us feel is wrong. Most of us commit and is very uncomfortable to talk about. Do I have you? Partiality. Favoritism. Prejudice. He jumps headlong into this sin that should not be present in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, honestly, we all have biases. And our sin of partiality manifests itself differently for everyone. But we tend to make assumptions about people based on our own biases. Let me give you some examples. How about the clothes they wear or how they wear them? Do we form an opinion about somebody just because we see how they wear their clothes? The cars they drive or the way they drive him. Hello, like... Get out of the left lane. 
I have a hard time with that. I'm very opinionated. The house they live in or what part of town their house is. The color of their skin or where they are from or what they wear on their head. How they vote or what political sticker they have on their bumper. Really? You vote? Oh, wow. We form an opinion about them instantly. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, like this is real stuff. This is hard for me to talk about. The church they belong to or don't. What level of education they have received. Or their level of righteousness or however we determine that, which would be called self-righteousness. When we make divisions along these lines, we neuter the central message of the gospel of Christ. And that is, it's for whosoever. It's for everyone. Now, I'm not saying we can't have differences of opinions, just the opposite. Here's the beautiful thing about the church. The hallmark of the church of Jesus Christ should be our ability to love one another regardless of our external differences. So I'm not saying you can't have a different opinion. I'm just saying that that difference should not be what we use to formulate an opinion about somebody else and then treat them in a different way because of it. There's a supernatural force at work in the church of Jesus Christ that causes people of different races, economic and social levels and age groups to come together in love to the point where Jesus Christ said, it's going to be so evident that people outside of your organization will see the way that you behave towards each other and it's going to be so remarkable that they'll know that you are a follower of Christ because the way you treat each other. How are we doing? It's going to be so evident that you've got different political parties, different races, different socioeconomic levels, all worshiping now. Okay, so when he wrote this, like the early church, there would be slaves and their slave owners attending the same church and worshiping God together. Jews and Greeks in the same room worshiping the Lord and studying the word of God and doing life together. That's the power of the gospel. Do we even understand what that's supposed to look like? And yet we have crafted these opinions of other people based on criteria that we have established as critical. So James is addressing this very uncomfortable sin. You're welcome. So James chapter 1, I saw James chapter 2, he jumps right into it here. He says this in James chapter 1, uh, 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I just love how he introduces this thought. He says, don't show any partiality. Don't show favoritism for one person over another. Why? Because you hold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that what you have is so incredibly valuable and so worthy of your adoration 
this glory of Jesus Christ, that anything anybody else could offer you seems meaningless. So when you're holding this faith, this belief in Christ, this glory of Jesus Christ, what could you hope to gain by showing partiality to somebody else? Now, when we show partiality, it's always because we want to get something. When you meet a famous person, right? It's because you want to feel, you, you feel something when you're around somebody famous. Like, like all of a sudden you, you have a hard time forming words. And you're awestruck. And, and, and the reason you want to be with them is because you're hoping to gain something. Maybe, maybe their friendship. Maybe their respect. Maybe their favor. I don't know. And that's the issue. So we prefer them. We prefer somebody rich. We prefer somebody famous because of what they can give us. And unfortunately, I think that's the reputation that the church has in our culture today. That, that, that you can come to our church, but we fully expect you to look like us and act like us in order to feel like you belong with us. God, help us that we have established what Christianity is supposed to look like, and you're a jerk. Like, you're not even acting like Jesus. You call yourself a Christian because of a set of rules and criteria that you have set up and established based on what you think Jesus is trying to say. But we're not even acting like Christ. That's the thing that bothers me the most about this, is that we are using our own criteria to force other people into a system of belief or, or, or into, into a way of conduct like we're some kind of a country club. You're welcome here if you don't wear this or you wear this or you do this at the right time or you say this. Why has that become the standard by which we love somebody? I told you it was tough. I'm like having to breathe deep breaths up here. James says, what does that have to do with the faith that you hold? You hold the glory of Jesus Christ. There should be nothing that anybody can offer you that would be greater than that. If Tony Romo walked into this room right now, somebody famous like that. I was trying to think of a famous redskin. Couldn't think of one. Just trying to think. Let's see. Uh, uh, no, I just can't. No, I got nothing there. I got nothing. So if somebody famous comes in and sits next to you, you'd be like, aren't you? What? You'd be awestruck. You'd be like, wow, Tony Romo's here. Okay, yay. And I realize that's an extreme example because he's so famous and so great. I'm so glad he finally got to see a Super Bowl as a commentator. But then if Jesus Christ came in, in all of his glory, accompanied by angels, worshiping, and sits down next to you, all of a sudden, Romo doesn't look all that great. 
I know what you're thinking. He doesn't look that great anyway. I'm just saying in comparison to the glory of the Lord that you hold within you because of the faith that you have, there is nothing that compares to that. Be so full of God that you don't need anything from anybody else. You can just love them like Jesus because you're not trying to get anything from them. So then James gives us an example. He, he throws this, this verse out there. Don't show partiality. You got Jesus living inside of you. You got nothing to gain from being partial to, to anybody. And so then he gives this real life example that I really feel must have been something he heard about or something that he witnessed. Because he says this in verses two, three, and four. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or here, sit here down by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Ouch. Like, I wonder if his readers knew what he was talking about here. Like, oh, yeah. Your partiality, what he says here, your partiality has encumbered your judgment. That standard by which you're judging somebody, you see that? Has affected how you see them. And that's a problem. Here's why. Partiality uses external factors to make an assessment that affects our behavior for the wrong reason. Now, think carefully with me here. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big statement, all right? Partiality, favoritism, which I believe is one step away from prejudices. So partiality uses external factors to make an assessment, I'm gauging you in my mind, that affects my behavior towards that individual for all the wrong reasons. We act differently towards them based on our faulty thinking about them because of what we think is important. We should instead love them the way God loves them, and that is absolutely unconditionally. Here's another way to say it. We make an assessment of their value based on what we see. Thank God he doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. God so loved the world. That's everybody. That's whosoever. So then in, in the next couple of verses, James is going to give us this paradox. He's going to kind of flip their brains a little bit because it's natural to be awestruck by somebody who is successful or somebody who is wealthy or charismatic or famous. It's natural to be that way. And so he's going to give them a paradox here to kind of maybe reframe their thinking. He says this in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world? Now, that's very important. God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith. Why do you think that is? Are those the people that recognize how much they need God? Yes. 
So in God's economy, he doesn't see things the way we do. Outward success does not mean a good relationship with the Lord. It doesn't mean there's not. I'm just saying we can't use the external. So then he says this. He said, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? Those you despise could be the very ones who are the richest in faith. Not only that, I think this, that when you align yourself against the poor, according to Scripture, I believe that you put yourself in opposition with the Lord because he has chosen the poor. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is the first chapter in, in Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this. He said, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Man, there's some intentionality there, isn't there? We should not treat individuals with contempt based on our own biases. In fact, they are blessed. Remember the most famous Sermon on the Mount? Jesus preaches, Matthew 5, who are blessed? He says the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the seekers of righteousness, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted. These people are blessed. So be very careful how you treat them. It sure seems to me that God pays close attention to those who need him the most. That's a really powerful statement. I'm going to say it again. God pays close attention to those who need him the most. Maybe we should as well. He continues his, his paradoxical illustration. Just like that word. But you have dishonored the poor man. Can I say that another way? You have treated the poor man without honor. How would you honor a rich person? How would you honor them? Would you give them your time? Would you look forward to seeing them? How do you honor certain people? What he's saying is, all right, you have dishonored the poor man. You have treated them without honor. And that's, that's, that's a hard word. And he goes on to say, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So the first part, well, I think what he's saying here is that he says this, partiality dishonors the person based on their packaging. That's, that's remarkable. So I am not going to show you honor because of how you're packaged, the way you wear your clothes, the car that you just stepped out of, the part of town that you live in. I'm, I'm not going to honor you because of these preconceived notions that I have about who you are based on what I see. James is saying, don't be guilty of dishonoring the very people that God has chosen to bless. Verse 7, he says this, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? These are, these are the wealthy. So in the culture of the day, 
If you owed money to a rich person and they saw you as you're walking down the street, they could literally grab you by the scruff of the shirt and put you into prison to pay back the debt. I've never understood how that helps you get your money. Because now his family has to work to try and not only pay that debt back, but get him out of jail. But he had, that, he had the authority to literally put you in, and they did. That's what, that's what James is referring to here. And then he says, he says they, they, they blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. They have nothing in common with your faith. They may be rich and famous, but they are poor and destitute in their soul. He says this in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, which is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, Jesus is the one who introduced this to us. Somebody asked Christ what the greatest commandment was. There were hundreds of them. And he says, I'll give you two. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two hang all of the commandments. And so the royal law here, it's assumed that we're loving God. And he says here, love your neighbor as yourself. If you will do that, you are doing well, he says. Showing partiality then goes against the very God that we serve. It goes against the teachings of Christ. We're supposed to treat everybody Equally, we're supposed to show them the grace, love, and mercy that we've been shown. I am to spend the rest of my life showing others the way that I've been treated by God. What a great opportunity. The church is not a country club where people have to act like us to belong. We are a family with open arms and busy hands. That's why we're here. God help us from being really good at church, but terrible at being a Christian. We're not Christians because we live by a certain set of rules. We're Christians because we are like Christ. That's, that's the standard. Verse 9 says this, and he wraps up this whole thought with this. And you can breathe a sigh of relief here in a moment. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Then he spends the next couple verses going into the different types of ways that you break the law. But he's saying this, if you don't have this down, if you are violating this law, if you're showing partiality, then you're guilty of transgressing the law of God. It's not a small sin. It's a big deal to God. So let's, let's, let's take a little personal inventory. Like that negative opinion you have about somebody, because of what you are seeing, be very careful about that sin. Are you able to show them the love of Christ and still feel the same way about them? What makes that so much worse is that partiality is particularly inconsistent with the faith that we claim to have. Christ died for all of us, rich and poor, and he stressed the equality of all believers and the unity that we are supposed to have as a brotherhood of believers. 
and preferring one person over another because of wealth or status or spiritual intellect or political persuasion introduces an element of wickedness into Christian relationships called disunity and division. And that is what God is against. So, as we wrap up here, let me give you two partial thoughts. I thought that was really clever. Partiality, par, partial, par, ah, okay. Two partial thoughts here. The first thought is this. Partiality always compares. So let's compare everyone to Jesus, including you. Including you, right? So here we are. So, so, so we all fade in comparison to the glory of Jesus. Only God is worthy of our preference. Take away all of your man-made comparables. That's hard to do. But take away all of these things that we have created to make a judgment. We invented those in order to classify people according to our standards. I'll give you, for instance, when you meet somebody for the first time and you're trying to make small talk, what's one of the first questions you ask them? What do you do for a living? I mean, obviously, you want to get their name, right? Hey, hi, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? Hi, hi, good to meet you. Hey, uh, what do you do? It's a socially acceptable way to find out where you stand with these people. Right? Oh, what do you do? Oh, yeah, where do you live? Oh, what's your connection here with these people? Like, you're trying, your brain is scrambling, right, to try and classify where they, and I'm, and I'm, saying, I'm not saying all of that's, like, intentionally trying to make them look bad. I'm just saying, like, like, okay, so I'm, one of the first things we do is say, what do you do for a living? I want to know how much money you make. I want to know if I respect your career. I'm trying to see if it's better than mine or if mine's better than yours. I'm trying to put you into a category so I know how to feel about you. It's, it's, it's what we do. It's societally acceptable to classify somebody. Now, I don't know that it would be any more appropriate to say, hi, I'm Eric, how's your prayer life? That'd be weird too, all right? But it's like, how do we, how do we have meaningful relationships with people without making it about economy or race or standard of living or education? Wouldn't it be beautiful if we could, though, strip that away and just look at you as a brother or sister in Christ? That's the way it's supposed to be. That's who we are called to be. So partiality always compares, so let's compare everyone to Jesus. Partiality assesses value, so let's value everyone. Let's just, I'm good with who you are. We're on the spiritual journey together. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Now, let me just tell you, we don't have the energy to be close friends with lots of people. We only have so much social bandwidth Right? We can only have close friendships with, they say, on average, 8 to 12 people. All right? So I'm not saying everybody has to be your best friend. 
I'm not putting that on you. I'm just saying don't form a negative opinion about them based on what you're looking at. That's partiality. We are to love our neighbors, rich and poor, black or white. Like the Samaritan in Luke chapter 14. They tried to trap Christ when he said that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, yeah, but Jesus, like, really, who's our neighbor? I mean, you don't really expect us to to treat like Samaritans good, do you? I mean, you do know that they're half-breeds, right? I mean, you do know that, I mean, Jesus surely, so then Jesus tells the famous parable of the good Samaritan. And I think what he's trying to convey to us there is we are to neighbor the one who needs us. Not the one who meets our socioeconomic scale. You score good. You're my friend. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you because you and me, we got, we're, we're the same. No, we help everybody. We don't put conditions on that. You can't love well if you're partial. You can't love well if you play favorites. You can't love well if you think you are superior to somebody else. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there's a reason for that. I saw this, and I just I felt like it was such a great illustration. Adam, I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you give me a hug right here? Come on, man, just right here. Just. So Adam's my friend, right? He's my, he's my smoking buddy. Right there? All right. Now, see how awkward that was right there? Because I am superior. Hang on, hang on, don't go anywhere. Watch this. Don't, don't ruin my illustration, Adam. So we, we both smoke butts together. That's what I'm saying. So how about this right here? See what I'm saying? Isn't it better to love somebody when you're on the same level as they are? That's all you need. That's good. Thank you. So apparently Adam's not a hugger. Should have thought that one through. When you feel you're superior because of your biases, you aren't loving them well. Get rid of those biases. Get rid of your partiality and start loving people the way Jesus does. Partiality assesses value, so let's value everyone. Do we even understand the meaning of the gospel? It's not about a system that you create to make yourself feel like a successful Christian because you come to church with other people who do just like you do. Do we even understand what this kingdom mentality is supposed to be? Are we really different from the world that we live in? We should be. We have been forgiven much. We've been loved well. Let's do the same. And let's remember the words of Christ where he said, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. Then he said this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the hallmark. That's like people 
looking in, looking at, experiencing with, that ought to be what just makes you stand apart, not your steeple, not your suit, not your Bible, not the way you dress, not whether or not you wear this or that. What, <laughs> what makes you a Christian and what should be evident to this world is the love that you have for each other. That's the supernatural force that should be ingrained in all of us. Don't show partiality. Jesus had this incredible ability to look at somebody and see what they could become, not what they were. That's how we need to be. Let's love well. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of revival in this area of our life. I truly believe that we don't, we don't even realize the biases that we hold towards people and how we write people off because of the sticker that's on their car or the color of their skin or what's on top of their head. Father, I pray that you would, as we grow closer to you and we focus on our relationship with you, that you would help us to love people well. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Help us to be who you want us to be in this community. I feel like our nation needs healing. I feel like we are, we are exercising and working hard to be, to be separated from each other and finding what's wrong with the other side. And even in our own town, there's conflict and disunity. I pray, Father, that we as a church would not get caught up in that, but we'd love each other the way that you would. Thank you for loving us so well. In Jesus' name, amen.